Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. The Apostle Paul wrote, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. A songwriter wrote words that we don't sing much anymore when he said, There is no trial, grief, or pain, no moment of the day, but that we may in Jesus' name incline our souls and pray. It's hard to think of Christianity without thinking of prayer. They're not synonymous terms, of course, but if we're to think of what it means to be faithful to God, what it means to have a desire to love God and to know God more, you can't think of that very long before your mind automatically turns to the concept of prayer and the desire to pray and to be constant in prayer. The verse we used this week on the front page of our newsletter for the basis of the article reminds us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 17, very short, that verse says, Pray without ceasing. Prayer is a wonderful privilege. But prayer is not just a New Testament concept. All throughout the pages of Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament, you see people of God, people who loved God, desired to love Him more or show their love for Him more, praying to Him. Sometimes those prayers are actually written out. The text of them is found in Scripture. Sometimes we simply have a note that says this person prayed or this person cried out to God or this person poured out before God. Sometimes those prayers are turned into songs or psalms. We have many of them. Many of the psalms that read as simply prayers in poetry form. Prayer is a wonderful thing. It's right that we sing so many songs as we have this morning that either deal specifically with prayer or or that have as their basis the concept that we will be people of prayer and be in prayer to God. But this morning what I want to do is look at one of the more famous chapters in the Bible. If you'll turn back to Daniel chapter 6, you'll have the outline of our lesson right there in front of you. It's one of the more famous chapters in the Bible, of course, where Daniel ends up in the lion's den. We're going to look this morning at that chapter without going to the lion's den. We're going to think about what got Daniel thrown into the lion's den. Just by way of reminder of what happens in this chapter, of course, you recall that Daniel is in exile. He rises to basically the top of the kingdom as one of the king's leaders, king's advisors, but others who have that same role simply don't like that Daniel is able to be faithful to the king and faithful to his God and be so well thought of by King Darius. And they don't like that so much that you recall that they try to find something wrong with Daniel. And one of the greatest testaments ever given to anyone in Scripture is found at the end of Daniel chapter 6 and verse 5, where we're told the people could not find anything contrary or anything wrong with Daniel except as it pertained to him and his God. This is not the point of our lesson this morning, but Would that that could be said of every one of us. That the only thing people could find wrong with us is that we are quote-unquote too faithful to the God of heaven. That's all they could find wrong with Him. And so you remember that they decide to trick the king. We know they tricked the king because they come before him and they say all the leaders have signed off on this document. If that's the case, Daniel himself would have signed off on this document. He wouldn't have signed off on this. 
But they come before the king and they say, well, we signed off on this document that says that no one should pray to anyone or anything other than you, O king, for a period of 30 days. And for whatever reason, arrogance or pride or maybe just ignorance, the king decides that's, that's a good idea. And so he signs the law, and the law of the Medes and the Persians cannot be broken. And so for 30 days, no one can pray to anyone other than King Darius himself. But that doesn't stop Daniel. Daniel goes to his house, prays as he had previously, verse 10 tells us. Of course, the people knew that. These other leaders knew that Daniel would do that. They catch him praying because they knew that's what he was going to do. The king is sorry for what he has done, but he can't break the law. And so Daniel was thrown into the den of lions. That's what gets him there. But it's amazing to me to study what is said about Daniel's prayer life in this chapter. And by the way, it's worth some time reading the entire book of Daniel and just noting that he was a man of prayer. This chapter is littered with either recorded prayers of Daniel or simple notations that say that Daniel prayed. It's all over the place. It's one of the most densely filled books of the Bible with references to prayer. But I love what's found in Daniel chapter 6, where we see Daniel coming back to his house and praying as he had done before. But what's remarkable about this particular account is that this is a precursor to what you will see later in the life of Jesus Christ. Now, of course, Daniel occurs several centuries before Jesus comes. But there are some things found in Daniel's prayer life that we will later see in perfection in Jesus Christ. And so we're calling our lesson this morning, Daniel's Christ-like prayer life. Obviously, Daniel comes first. But we see Daniel doing these things. Then we see them lived out in perfection in Christ. And so what we're going to do this morning is look at Daniel for our example. Then notice where those things are found in the life of Jesus. And then hopefully make some application of our life and simply ask ourselves, are these things true of the way that I pray, of my prayer life, my personal life of devotion before God? I want to notice just four things, all of them found in the text that Trey read for us a little while ago from Daniel chapter 6, verses 8 through 10. The first thing we notice here is that Daniel's prayer life was properly directed. Now, it may seem strange to us that Daniel actually physically faces himself in a certain direction. You remember that verse 10 tells us that the windows of his upper chamber or of his upper room were open toward Jerusalem. And Daniel would have prayed out that window, or at least looking out that window, toward that place. And that may seem like a strange detail to us, because in the New Testament, we're not told that we have to pray facing some particular direction. We don't have to face the Sea of Jerusalem, or we don't have to face the church building, or anything like that. But there was a tradition found in the Old Testament that made this of great significance in the life of Daniel. If you want to keep your finger in Daniel chapter 6 and turn back to 1 Kings chapter 8, you see in 1 Kings chapter 8 where this tradition begins its place. You recall in 1 Kings chapter 8 that the temple is done, and Solomon is dedicating the temple. It's one of the high points of the Old Testament. As Solomon leads this great day of praise and of dedication, pouring out praise to God all throughout the day, and he actually prays the longest recorded prayer in the Old Testament, at least the text of a prayer found in the Old Testament. And it's in the text of that prayer that you see something that will carry throughout the rest of the Old Testament. If you're in 1 Kings 8, begin reading with me in verse 27. 
But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and his plea, O Lord my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you on this day, that your eyes may be open night and day, notice it, toward this house, the place of which you have said, My name shall be there. That when you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers, notice it, toward this place. And listen to the plea of your servant. And if your people Israel, notice it again, when they pray toward this place. And listen in heaven your dwelling place. And when you hear, forgive. Solomon was saying there's something about this location, the temple, where the name of God, the presence of God was to dwell, that the people would be drawn to and pray toward that place. Daniel was living hundreds of years later. He's nowhere near the city of Jerusalem. He's been taken away into captivity. And yet when he goes to his upper room or his upper chamber to pray, the windows that he is praying toward face Jerusalem. He knows what Solomon had said all the way back in this great dedication prayer of 1 Kings chapter 8. And so Daniel prays facing Jerusalem. But in reality, no matter what physical direction Daniel was facing, that is an outward sign of the true direction of his heart being directed toward God. Being directed heavenward, if you want to think of it that way. You see, Daniel realized that it wasn't necessarily praying toward Jerusalem physically that made all the difference. But he simply was outwardly showing that by opening that window and facing that direction when he offered that prayer. And it seems as if that was a regular occurrence that he would look out that window or at least face out that window as he prayed. Several centuries later, Jesus had just finished giving one of the longest discourses of his life. He had spoken to his apostles in the upper room. The discourse covers most of four chapters. John chapter 13, 14, 15, and 16. And then as John records for us chapter 17, sometimes called the high priestly prayer, sometimes called the true or the real Lord's prayer, the chapter begins with simply an editorial comment or a a historical content where John said, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven. And then the prayer is recorded for us for the remainder of that long chapter. By the way, it is the longest recorded prayer of Jesus. But the text begins by telling us Jesus lifted up his eyes toward heaven and then uttered this heart-wrenching prayer. And I don't think Jesus was doing that to say that in the New Testament times that when we pray, we have to actually look upward or look towards the heavens or anything along those lines. I think what we see in Daniel facing towards Jerusalem and in Jesus lifting up his eyes towards heaven is simply an outward expression of when you and I pray, our hearts need to be directed always in the direction of God. Our prayers are directed to Him This may seem obvious, but sometimes we need to be reminded, we're not praying to ourselves. And we're not praying to to impress other people. I remember several years ago, and I only mentioned any of the specific details, but there was a, a former president who had passed away, and I was watching on television one of the many ceremonies for him. And at this particular service, they had a religious leader that was supposed to lead an invocational prayer for that that uh that politician. And I listened to that prayer. I wasn't trying to be too picky, but basically, 
Basically, he began by saying something like God or Father or something like that. And the rest of the prayer was simply reading the resume of the one who had died. That's all he did. He talked about where he was born. He talked about his parents. He talked about all he had done coming up through the political realm and what he had done as president and what he had done following his presidency. There was never another word that any of this was supposed to really be for God or a petition to God or a thanksgiving for God. It was just, here he is. And as I watched that, I thought, I'm not trying to be too picky because I think sometimes can I not pray like that? That my prayers sometimes are more look how good I am, or, if it's a public setting, look how wonderfully I pray. But folks, our prayers are not directed at me or each other. Our prayers need to be properly directed heavenward to the very throne of God. Number two, we also see in this text that Daniel's prayers were humble. They were filled with humility. You know, Jesus told a parable about prayer that we need to have in our minds. We're not going to take the time to read all of it this morning, but it's found in Luke chapter 18. And you recall, that's the, the parable where a, a publican and a Pharisee go to the temple, and Jesus says the Pharisee basically in his prayer talk, tells God how good he is. I'm I, I, not an extortioner. I'm not an adulterer. I, I, don't, I, I fast twice a week. I give a tithe of all that I have. I'm not like anybody else. In fact, I'm not like that sinner over there. And you remember the parable that the, the publican, the tax collector, won't even look up. He beats his breast. And the whole text of his prayer is, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's all he says. But as Jesus ends that parable, he gives the point of application. When he says, this man, the tax collector, went home justified rather than the other one. And then Jesus said, for everyone who humbles himself will be exalted, and the one who exalts himself will be humbled. It's one of the few times, by the way, that Jesus gives the point of application in the parable itself. But what's the point of application? Prayer is not real prayer unless it's filled with humility. We see that in the life of Daniel. Did you notice in Daniel chapter 6 and verse 10, we're told that Daniel got on his knees in order to pray. Now, you can read different scholars. Some suggest that the picture I have there a few moments ago, Daniel on two knees and maybe his hands clasped in front of him. Maybe that's what it was. Others suggest that maybe he was on his knees but also face down on the ground. Whatever it was, he prostrated himself in some way to offer this particular prayer. Some of you may remember the days when even in a public worship service, some of the men would get on, their, get on a knee and they would kneel as they prayed. I'm old enough to remember seeing that when I was a child a couple of times. I haven't seen it in a couple of decades or more, but I remember seeing it two or three times, I guess. Now, some of you remember that constantly. I don't think that's a right or wrong thing. It's just the way some people would outwardly express that humility. And that's what Daniel was doing by getting on his knees to pray. It wasn't a command. It was just something he outwardly did as a sign of humility, or if you want to change the word to submission, that's fine. A sign of submission before God as he offered this particular prayer. It was filled with humility. It may seem strange to ask the question, but do we ever see humility in the prayers of Jesus? Now that may seem like a strange question to ask. Because Jesus was God. He was Emmanuel, God with us. So why would there need to be any real humility in His prayers? Well, the answer to that is because every step that Jesus took on this earth, every breath that He breathed was a breath, a step of humility and submission. And that's even seen in His prayers. One example of that is seen in John chapter 11. 
In John 11, of course, that's where Jesus raises his friend Lazarus from the dead. And you recall that right before Jesus performs that miracle, he prays a very, very short prayer. But it begins in John 11 and verse 41 with the words, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. Now, I know that the verse goes on to say, you've always heard me, and that this is done for those who are, I I, I understand that. But did Jesus really have to pray to God saying, I'm thankful that you heard me? Because you think God always heard his prayers, and he did. But this is a sign of the humility of Jesus. That he was simply thankful that God listened to his prayers. If Jesus prayed that, how much more do I need to pray that? That we're grateful that God even allows us to speak to Him. That God even allows me to enter His presence in prayer. It was a sign of humility. And a very powerful one at that. Our prayers don't need to be filled with false humility. But they certainly need to be humble. We are entering the very presence of the creator of the universe. We are coming before the ruler of all things. And so a humility, a submission, a reverence needs to always accompany our prayers. Number three, in Daniel's prayer life, I also see that his prayers were filled with gratitude. In Daniel chapter 6, we're not given the text of Daniel's prayer. We're not told exactly what he said. But we are told in verse 10 that he prayed and gave thanks before his God. Now just for a moment, remember the context. Remember what had just happened, historically speaking, before this recording of a prayer is given to us in Daniel chapter 6. Daniel knew that this document had been signed by the king. He knew this decree had gone out. He knew that no one in the kingdom... High level, low level, didn't matter. No one in the kingdom was supposed to be praying to anyone except the earthly king himself for the next 30 days. And Daniel also knew that the punishment had been listed in the decree itself. That anybody caught doing that was to be thrown into a den of lions. Here's a good question. What is there possibly to be thankful for in that situation? But Daniel prayed and gave thanks to God. The reason is simply stated, but very difficult to live out. And that is this. We always have reason to give thanks. No matter what's going on around us. No matter how bad the world gets, no matter how bad my life may seem, there is always a reason to give thanks to the God of heaven. I think we see that in Daniel's example. At the very outset of our lesson, I quoted Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. You remember Paul said, prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. Do we ever see Jesus thankful in His prayers? We we just mentioned one from John 11. But there's another that's interesting to me. It's in John chapter 6, where Jesus is preparing to perform the only miracle outside of the resurrection that's found in each of the four accounts of the gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That miracle is the feeding of the 5,000. And you remember that Jesus saw the need of the people and He received as a gift this small boy's lunch, it seems. Five little loaves of barley, two small fish. And He had the apostles organize the people. But then we're given a little detail. 
Before he distributed the food, what does the text say in John 6? When he had given thanks, he distributed these things. Now, for what he gave thanks, we can conjecture. Maybe it was for the little boy. Maybe it was for the fact there were people there to hear him. Maybe it was for the food itself. Maybe it was for the miracle he was getting ready to perform. Maybe it was because God was hearing this prayer as well. Maybe it was a combination of any of those or anything else. But it's significant that Jesus paused for a moment knowing what he was getting ready to do, knowing he could do it and would do it, and yet he gave thanks in that situation. It is very easy, and I speak here to me, and for something here for you, I hope it's helpful. It is very easy to make prayer Nothing more than a list of I wants and please do's. If we're not careful, we can turn prayer into nothing more than some kind of cosmic to-do list for God. Our prayers need to be filled with thanksgiving and gratitude. I know some days that's easier than others. I know some seasons of life that's easier than others. But folks, if Daniel could be thankful, knowing what was going on in the kingdom around him, and probably knowing he was going to be caught. If he could be thankful then, can I not be thankful no matter what might be going on in my life for something? James reminds us in James chapter 1 and verse 17 that every good and every perfect gift comes from above, coming down from the Father of lights in whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. If every good and perfect gift comes from God, that includes physical gifts and spiritual gifts. It includes big gifts and small gifts. And it certainly includes gifts that I need to be thankful for. Several years ago, a poet tried to place in words a prayer of thanksgiving. It comes to us in a song that we rarely sing, but I I love the words. Thanks to God for my Redeemer. Thanks to all Thou dost provide. Thanks for time is now but a memory. Thanks to Jesus by my side. Thanks for pleasant, balmy springtime. Thanks for dark and dreary fall. Thanks for tears by now forgotten. Thanks for peace within my soul. Thanks for prayers that thou hast answered. Thanks for what thou dost deny. Thanks for storms that I have weathered. Thanks for all thou dost supply. Thanks for pain and thanks for pleasure. Thanks for comfort and despair. Thanks for grace that none can measure. Thanks for love beyond compare. Thanks for roses by the wayside. Thanks for thorns their stems contain. Thanks for homes and thanks for fireside. Thanks for hope that sweet refrain. Thanks for joy and thanks for sorrow. Thanks for heavenly peace with thee. Thanks for hope in the tomorrow. Thanks through all eternity. Besides the poetic nature of that, when's the last time you prayed anything like that? Just thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Daniel's prayers were filled with gratitude. And number four, Daniel's prayers also were consistent. Twice in verse 10, we are given a glimpse into the consistency or the regularity of the prayers of Daniel. And Eric, you're going to switch this. My battery just (laughs) up here. We're given a picture twice in verse 10 into Daniel's consistency. First, we're told that three times he prayed on this particular day. Now, I have no doubt he prayed more often on that day, but for some reason there was a a three-time-a-day consistency to his prayers, part of his day-to-day activities. But then at the end of verse 10, do you notice the little phrase, as he had done previously? You know, rarely in Scripture are we given a full day's account of someone's life. That's that's a rare thing. And we're not given that here. 
We're not told everything that Daniel did on that day. We're not told what he ate that day or how much he slept that night or whatever. But we are told that each day, with regularity, Daniel three times each day came before God in some, it seems, formal fashion in his own life. When we come to the life of Jesus, we're not given some formula for how often, how, how many times a day Jesus prayed, three or five or one or whatever. But we know that prayer was a regular and a consistent part of his life. For one thing, we see it mentioned over and over and over again in the accounts of the gospel. Sometimes the text simply says, Jesus went away to pray. Sometimes the text just says, Jesus prayed. And sometimes we actually have the text of his prayers. But it's constant. And it's in every situation and season of his life. But maybe one of the clearest examples of how consistent the prayer life of our Lord was is found in Luke chapter 22. And it was at a very dark moment in the life of Jesus. After telling Peter that Peter would deny Jesus three times before the end of the night, Jesus needed to pray. And Luke tells us in chapter 22, verse 39, And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And the context goes on, you remember, to tell us about the agonizing prayer that Jesus prayed three times that night in the Garden of Gethsemane. But did you notice the little phrase, as was his custom? Have you ever wondered how Judas Iscariot knew where to find Jesus? Judas wasn't there when Jesus left the upper room with the other apostles. He'd already gone. He certainly didn't meet with the other apostles on the street. They, they all went out with Jesus toward the Garden of Gethsemane. How did Judas know where to find Jesus? Folks, if you couldn't find Jesus in the city of Jerusalem, you knew where to look. He went out to the garden, as was his custom, in order to pray. If, is prayer that consistent in our lives? The New Testament doesn't give us all the prescriptions of prayer. By that I mean, it doesn't say, thou must pray three times a day, or thou must pray five times a day, or you have to pray this specific time of day. Really, the only prescription we're given as far as times is that when the church comes together, they pray. But as far as our personal lives, we're not given any prescription as far as that goes, number of times, or a specific location that we have to go to over and over and over again in order to be found faithful. But that said, there is something to be said for Making sure that prayer is consistent in our lives. Predictable, if you want to think of it that way. If it takes literally putting it on the calendar, what's wrong with that? If it takes literally having a place, maybe a favorite chair or a closet, as Jesus spoke about it, an inner room or whatever, to go to in order to trigger in your mind a thought of prayer, what's wrong with that? Absolutely nothing. The only New Testament command is simply to pray without ceasing. The call of the New Testament is for consistency in our prayers always. And they, that they should never cease. You know, anytime we present a lesson on prayer, it's interesting to hear the reactions of people. It seems to me, at least, I don't know everyone, but at least their personal lives, but it seems to me that those who I would think are the most devoted, just love God, they're the ones who say, boy, I needed that because I need to pray more. And sometimes it seems that those who don't seem to be all that devoted just kind of tune off at the very beginning because I'm doing the best I can. You know, we see in the life of Daniel someone who was going through something more stressful than I can imagine and who knew, who knew that if he literally was caught praying, that his life was over. 
But that would not stop this prophet of God from pouring out his heart and even being grateful as he had done previously. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Prayer is one of the greatest blessings of being a child of God. Because God has promised in His Word that if we are a child of His, He will listen. He will give our prayers a fair hearing. We could start another lesson right now if we wanted to. Well, I prayed fervently and I didn't get what I wanted. We, we can talk all we want about how God answers prayer. Sometimes the yes, sometimes the no, sometimes with a wait a while, sometimes with something else or something different or something better. We understand all that. But this morning, just for this morning, I want you just to look at your own life and just ask yourself, does it seem as if there's just more on me that needs to be there? Because I'm not taking those things before God. Is there more bitterness in my life? Because I'm not thanking God. And if you are a child of God, are you taking advantage of that great privilege to simply talk to your Father without ceasing? If you're not a Christian, you don't know that great privilege. And what a grand difference it can make in your life. What a joy it is. What an honor it is. But what a privilege it is. But this morning, because of what God has done through His Son Jesus, you can know that privilege if you're willing to come to Him. Being willing to state your faith, that you believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Being willing to turn from your sins and repentance. And being willing to be immersed, baptized in water for the forgiveness of your sins. At that point, the Lord adds you to His church and you can talk to your Father. This morning, are you a Christian who maybe is struggling with prayer or maybe the things that prayer could provide, but you just struggle and you want us to pray with you as a, as a family of God's people to help you and encourage you? Or maybe you need prayers of forgiveness. You haven't been living the way you, you need to and you want to make sure your life is right with God so that you can stand justified in His sight. Whatever your need is this morning, we invite you to come. We stand and sing to encourage you.